Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S., and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Now Appalachia. We are broadcast and distributed around the country and throughout the world on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us today. We have a first-time author with us on the program today, but he has got a book that is absolutely fantastic. He's certainly not a first-time author, but he's a first-time author on our program. His name is Chris McGinley, and we're glad to have him on the program today. His book is terrific. It came out uh, not too long ago from Shotgun Honey Press. It's called Once These Hills, set right in the heart of eastern Kentucky, right in the heart of Appalachia. And it's a story of violence, a story of redemption, a story about a chase with a strong woman, all set in those rugged mountainscapes of eastern Kentucky. It's just a terrific read. And uh, Chris lives uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, and he joins us uh, from there today, where he writes crime fiction that is set mostly in the hills of Appalachia. But he also teaches middle school social studies in English. His story, Hellbenders, made the other distinguished stories of 2018 list in the Best American Mystery Stories of 2019. His work has appeared also in Mystery Tribune, Mystery Weekly, Tough, Pulp Modern, Switchblade, and on other sites and outlets. Cole Black, which was also published by Shotgun Honey Books, is his first collection of stories, and he joins us today to talk to us about this brand new collection, which is just fantastic, or this brand new novel, rather, which is just fantastic. It's called Once These Hills. So, Chris, welcome to Now Appalachia. Great to have you here. Oh, I'm delighted to be uh, to be here and honored. Thanks so much. I've listened to a lot of the podcasts. Well, thanks so much for being being a listener, and I, I'm just delighted to have you on. And when I heard that this book was coming out, and I saw you on social media talking about it, I thought this is this is a book we've got to have on the program because it sounds terrific and and it lived up to all of that uh, and then some. So I wanted to ask you first: uh, you, you have a character uh, in this book named Lydia King, who we'll talk more about uh, as the interview goes on who's just a a wonderful, wonderful character. And your story is set in 1898. It starts in 1898 and it kind of jumps ahead and goes back um, as we learn more about Lydia and her experiences. I wanted to ask you about about being a male writer, though, writing that that strong female protagonist. If that presented you any challenges or uh, was there a point where you you knew early on when you were putting this draft of the novel together that that you wanted to have sort of this, this strong female protagonist? What was that like? How did you come up with the decision to have her as kind of your your protagonist and what was that like writing uh, a female character from a male perspective yeah that's a really good question a lot of people ask me that um the the novels that i'm most seriously influenced by uh, are appalachian novels of the 30s 40s and 50s 60s um and they many of them feature they're either women novelists like janice holt giles or uh, Wilma Dykeman or uh, Harriet Arnault, um, and they feature female characters. And so these are the ones that I gravitated to. Uh, I don't exactly know why that is. I don't know if there's uh, some kind of feminine impulse inwardly in me or some kind of sensibility, but those are the characters I like. And so um, I always try to follow the adage, you know, write the book. Silas House says, write the book you would like to read. And so those are characters, those female characters just fascinate me. Lee Smith's characters. Um, there, there are many, many more. 
and uh, Dorothy Allison's characters. Um, the name, her name is in fact uh, a mixture of um, Lydia McQueen is a character in The Tall Woman, Wilma Dykeman, and uh, John Ely's uh, King family um, uh, from his series, from his novels, The Landbreakers. Uh, that was the start of the, the series of novels he wrote about the King family. But it was uh, sometimes, I think, difficult. Um, I, uh, I just sort of relied on um, as much as I could of people I had read before. So what are the things I, I want to write about? I wanted there to be a, a conflict, a physical conflict, and I absolutely positively wanted this character to be capable in every kind of a sense. Uh, and so at the beginning of the novel, you probably, you'll know that there's a, uh, because this novel takes place in the early 19th century, Lydia is more of an anomaly because she is uh, both feminine in some ways, but she's, she's traditionally masculine. And so uh, I wanted this character to have those those traits. And so I think it was not as hard as might be thought because she, much of her, the stuff she does is in fact sort of traditionally masculine stuff that I am have some kind of, you know, I'm versed in somewhat. Um, but it was difficult at times, um, you know, to say, oh God, how am I going to navigate this scene, this intimate scene, for example, or a scene with where two women are talking about something. And I rolled the dice and I let some other people read passages. So this is, you know, this is good. So I just went with it from there. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, she's, she's a terrific character and we'll come back to her uh, in just a second, but I also loved your book because place is so important to this story. Um, as we are focusing on this area and we're taken to Black Boar Mountain in Eastern Kentucky, where most of, of the story takes place. And I love how you kind of create a, a dichotomy here. There, there is sort of uh, life up on the mountain, and then there are some things going on down in the valley uh, at the bottom of the mountain. And I, and I love the contrast between life for the people that are the, the farmers that are occupying the mountainside and then sort of the... Uh, the uh, the machine work, for lack of a better expression, that's going on down uh, in the valley. Can you talk about this place, Blackboard Mountain, and, and kind of the the contrast that exists between kind of the, the hillside up here where, where Lydia uh, is familiar with, and then what's going on down here as sort of the industrial age is making its way through the community? Yeah, this is this is another thing that you will see in in, in other novels. Hubert Skidmore, the West Virginia novelist, wrote about that dichotomy between the rural and the increasingly urban around about the, in a little bit later time period, but not too much later. Um, so I wanted to, I did quite a bit of research um, on um, timber, the timber industry in Appalachia at the time and um, on obviously on the coal industry and the railroad, the spread of the railroad at the time. I'm not the first writer to deal with this stuff, but extractive industries have, have plagued the region for, for years. Um, they've also been a source of income. So it's a sort of a complicated thing to talk about, but uh, I thought that that would be a really cool tension. Uh, you asked a question about that dichotomy that would maybe could sustain a whole series of relationships and a whole series of conversations. And it could sustain, could generate the plot as well. And um, if I could maintain that tension between town, uh, down in the valley and the, the more that tribal community that's in the hills, uh, that traditional community of drovers and farmers who are sort of being forced out um, this was something that has happened in the region. And, and some people might say is in some ways still happening if you look at the presence of extractive industries in the region. But coming back to your question again, I wanted to, I thought that that could 
facilitate a tension that could support several different um, characters and plots and subplots and that kind of thing. And I thought it would be kind of cool to write about those those physical things, those mechanical changes and developments that occurred uh, even before the time period the novel set, but well into the to the um, early 20th century, too. Very good. And I want to ask you back to Lydia for just a second. Um, I, I love that we, you know, we, we get right into her story and we get right into what happens to her early on in the novel. And one of the things that we learn is when she's 10 years old, she comes across um, a body uh, as she's out, sort of out uh, there on Blackboard Mountain. And, um, and, and a curse is kind of set loose because she discovers that this body Talk a little bit about that, about working that that element into the story, sort of a um, a supernatural element to it, because yeah. some people in the community think that it is an actual curse. Other people think, well, no, it's not really. Uh, but then there's moments that we'll get to in a minute that, that start to happen that you think, well, maybe this is like a bad curse that has plagued this community. Well, talk about that, working that in and um, and sort of Lydia's reaction when she discovers the body and, and the, the events that kind of spring out from that. Yeah, um, I, I had written a story in my collection called Black about a, a a man, a body that was found in a sphagnum moss, a boggy area where bodies can be preserved um, <clears throat> because of the, the mixture of the, what's in the soil and, and the water there. And um, people really liked that. And I thought, wow, you know, I, I think this is a cool kind of way that I could bring some supernatural elements, some mystical, magical realism, whatever you call it to the um to the novel without it ever appearing like a, a something that's outside of the genre of the historical novel i don't i don't believe that this there's any kind of it's a supernatural element absolutely but this is grounded in in reality too um people find bodies and, and bones and such uh so i wanted it to um i wanted it to start the novel with something where you would have a like a something thrilling and something puzzling at the same time um, and I had written the second chapter first, and then I went back and said, you know, I need, I need something to, that could, again, much in the same way that you talked about that dichotomy between, uh, mechanical and the town and the, uh, and the rural, um, I wanted to have something that could run the course of the novel that people could come back to. And there are other chapters in there that take place at a different time altogether. And hopefully I've tied that up in the end of the novel. Um, but uh, I wanted to have something sort of shocking and thrilling and um, almost, you know, if you read a lot of Appalachian fiction, um, again, from those time periods I noted earlier, you will come across absolutely positively um, characters who talk about uh, witches or supernatural elements or folk, what we, what we call folklorish elements or folkloric elements in, in the fiction you'll come across talks of hanks and spirits and 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 such and i um i love that i just i like to read that stuff and it it thrills me i've uh, really got interested in that when i read a chris offit story called aunt granny lift a long time ago who's a real person in that novel but possesses sort of supernatural elements so one of the things uh, i love about lydia too is uh as going back to her again for just a second she is just so comfortable and familiar and almost has sort of a, a sixth sense or maybe even a seventh sense uh, about the land around her. And I love how you also work in sort of a, a romance, sort of a love story here. She meets um, yeah. a, another boy named Cole 
And um, there's something that just sort of attracts her right from the beginning about him. What is it that that catches her eye about Cole and, and what kind of a person is he and why does he in turn gravitate towards her so much? Yeah, they're absolutely both characters are at once a part of the the woods. They're a part of the forest. Um, they're intimate with it and they understand it and almost have a natural sense of a way to navigate it, to navigate the flora and the fauna there, to understand it, to know it and to um, to make their lives from it without desecrating it. And she sees that in him and feels that a sort of kindred spirit in Cole. And um, again, this this changes, of course, uh, with the advent of um, of the sawmill in the um, in the in the uh, valley. And so uh, that goes back to what you had asked about before. But their relationship is is one I wanted to draw. Um, I wanted to draw it in such a way that one would see these people are are of the woods almost that they're they're at home there they're of that that of black boar far more than they are of the valley we're talking with author chris mcginley on this episode of now appalachia he is the author of the brand new novel set in eastern kentucky called once these hills and chris uh, we'll come back uh, to the story and to the novel uh, in just a minute because we've got a uh, an antagonist that we've got to get to who is just uh -huh. terrific and i can't wait to talk to you uh, about uh uh, about him, about Mr. Burr Hollis, because we've got a lot uh, to say about him as well. But I wanted to ask you um, uh, first about uh, writing and your process. As we mentioned at the top of the show, you know, you, you teach, uh, you work with the sixth and eighth grade students teaching uh, English uh, and social studies. And we have a lot of folks uh, listening to the program who are teachers at various levels, college professors and so on. So, you know, we know a lot of us are familiar with the demand that that takes on time and energy and resources and all of that. How does your writing process work? How do you write these? How do you write your novels, your short stories, the things that you submit? Uh, how do you do it? How do you balance all of that with your teaching responsibilities and also, you know, being a husband and all of those things? How how do you manage all of that? Yeah, I, uh, that's a good question. I um, when I'm at school, uh, I'm all teachers are different, but I am one of these teachers who, if I have a planning period, I'm I'm using it to get things graded or to produce lesson plans or stuff. But I, I don't want to take a whole bunch of work home if I can help it. And so I'm incredibly <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm on it almost in a military sort of way. When students walk out of the classroom, I, you know, I say, I got to get down to these papers. I got to get down to these lesson plans. I got to get down to, you know, whatever I'm, if I'm going to do a hands-on piece, you know, if I'm going to do a carving or something with kids, or I'm going to, uh, do uh, an Ikebana display, show them how to do that. I need to prepare it beforehand. And so I'm, I'm pretty aggressive about getting everything done as much as I can here so that when I get home, I can have time to write usually in the evening. Uh, in the summers, however, I have a rule that I have to write a thousand words a day. And I'm pretty rigid about it. If I, if I get to 750, then I try to make, you know, 1300 the next day. Um, so I try, I, I try my best to, to write a thousand words a day in the summer and um, I sort of try to plan plan things out. I, I'm not a, a pantser, as they say. I, I don't I don't fly by the seat of my pants. I, I do have a plan with these novels and I've, you know, kind of more than just loosely sketched out where I think they want to go. And so once I sit down to writing, I'm again, I try to be pretty, um, pretty rigid about my word count. It sounds like you're also pretty protective or fiercely protective rather 
of your writing time, making sure that, uh, you know, when you do sit down to write that you have enough time and space and few as just as few distractions as possible to get that, that word count met. Right. Yeah, I do. Um, usually, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of people who, um, who do this five in the morning thing. I don't do that. I usually go to the gym in the morning. Um, but I, in the evening, I, I stay up to get things done. And particularly on the weekends, I produce a lot then. And sometimes it's a, you know, from 1030 till 130 or two in the morning, I'm just out on the back porch. I like it if it's cold, that helps me. I don't want to be overheated. <laughs> I like, I like to have coffee, iced coffee, and I like it to be cold. <laughs> there you right. Yeah, same here. I, I like it much more cold than hot, just in general. Yeah, in general, okay, interesting. <laughs> for sure, yeah. absolutely. I, I want to ask you another stylistic question about about the way you write because I, I love it too, and I find it really interesting. In your novel, um, in in Once These Hills, uh, a lot of the chapters are short, sometimes two and three pages long, and I noticed. Um, um, you know, your short stories, Cold Black, was was very similar too. You had, you had different stories of different lengths, but um, it seems like the length of the chapters works really well uh, in Once These Hills. And is that something you knew going in you were going to have, or is that something that you've seen another author do that influenced you? How did you make the decision to keep those chapters kind of short and concise? Because it really, I think, helps the novel move forward. Is that just something you've experimented with, something you knew going in you were going to do? How did you come up with uh, that decision to use those short chapters? I did I did know I wanted to do that. And in fact, some of those, many of those short chapters span the, you know, 20 and 30 pages in the original draft. And I broke them up intentionally with other uh, with other chapters from either from different time periods or from some other some other event going on in the novel in much the same way that you'd have like in a film or in a in a Hitchcock film, say, for example, a sort of classically structured narrative like that, where you're going back and forth, cross cutting between things, um, full well knowing that I, my opinion is modern readers um, prefer that. And guess what? I do, too. I, I don't know that I always did, but now I. Uh, I find that I'm, I like uh, shorter chapters and I, I, I think the reader needs to move on to something else. It keeps some pace going. Other people certainly don't, don't agree with that. But um, so I did, I consciously broke up many of those chapters after the fact um, going in and saying, where's a cool place to end this? And maybe even adding some kind of ending to one of those chapters that didn't exist before something where the reader's left with a little, Oh, what's going to happen here? Try to build tension. And then they have to wait another chapter to get back to it. So I broke them up like that um, intentionally and with, with, the, with the sense that, hey, I want to keep this moving. And I think that a lot of contemporary readers appreciate it. Chris McGinley is our guest on Now Appalachia. He is the author of the brand new novel, Once These Hills. We've been talking to him a little bit about his process and the way that he writes. And so we're going to go back to the book for just a few minutes because we've talked a lot about Lydia and we've talked a lot about who she is and her relationship with Cole. But now we have to talk about another character that you have created who is just absolutely fantastic. And his name is Burr Hollis. And to sort of set up the backstory about Burr, we talked about sort of that contrast between the hillside and, and what's going on down in the valley. We're learning that, uh, and we learn in your book that the railroad that is putting the railroad or the railroad company is using uh, prison labor or convict labor to, uh, to, to build the railroad. And there's a few guys on that convict team that do not like to do what they're doing and think that uh, they shouldn't have to be doing 
what they are doing. And they are led by a, a sort of a ringleader or, or a, a headmaster or, or whatever you want to say uh, of this group. His, his name is Burr Hollis. And I, I feel like we could have a whole show just talking about him as a character. But what I loved about him, Chris, is that he is sort of the, the, the charming, the persuasive, very kind of in the background sort of villain who uh, doesn't have you know the biggest muscles, doesn't have some kind of superhuman quality or superhuman nature, but he is just so good at, at manipulating people and, and saying things and just being um, just a real callous in that way. Can you tell us a little bit about about creating him? Because I found I find as a reader, and I found with with this book, him being that kind of a villain worked so so well, especially when he ultimately has this confrontation with Lydia. Talk to us a little bit about about creating. Him him and, and sort of the 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 area of, of making this cool calm persuasive but also sadistic person because he is uh th this kind of a character having that kind of a villain in this story yeah i i wanted to um to have a villain where i uh, there's two things here one is um i read years ago uh when it came out ron rash's serena and there's a character in there i think his name is gallagher he's a little guy and it just struck me as this is masterful he's got this little guy who brings so much havoc to everything and he's absolutely devastating he's feared and rightfully so and I, I, that compelled me um and then i wanted to create somebody i also um have always loved villains who are spoken about either in a film or a narrative a, a written narrative and not seen for a while and i wanted to create something where um for example, it happens in um, the usual suspects, the film, they're always talking about this character and it happens in um, the film, sexy beast, where they talk about Don Logan before he appears on screen. And I've, I've loved that technique of somebody who's talked about and people sort of uh, don't even mention his name. You know, it's, it's dangerous to even mention this guy's name. You don't want anything to do with him. So those were like sort of the two impulses that underlay what I was trying to do with this character. And I wanted him to be small and, um, you know, menacing, that was the term that, that I, I just wanted to create. Wesley Brown talked about um, the last 70 pages or such of his novel, Hill, um, Hillbilly Hustle. And he said, I wanted to, I just set out when he was editing it to put so much tension into that novel. And so I wanted, with this guy, I wanted people, other people in the scenes, just to, and the reader, of course, just to feel tension, almost that he would just exude some kind of menace that you just didn't want to be around. And so I created scenes where I could make that happen. At least I hope I did a good job with it. Um, he was just, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people who've read the novel said like, oh man, that guy scared the heck out of me, you know, or that guy, like I had dreams about that guy. <laughs> yes. And I think, you know, Chris, what makes him so interesting and, and multifaceted and multi-layered and such a great round character is the fact that, his charisma and that charm that we've been talking about, it really feeds on the weakness of others. And, and yes. there's almost a, a sociopathy associated with him where he knows and he can almost spot the weak person that he's going to be able to charm and manipulate. And that is just such a unpredictable quality because as we were talking about before we started recording, I was reading certain scenes and I thought, oh my gosh, you're being manipulated and you have no idea <laughs> that he's manipulating you. And I just think that makes him all the more dangerous uh, as a character because by the time you realize and by the time some of these characters in your book realize 
what he's really up to and what's really behind all of these things that he says, it's really too late. That's right. Uh, the character, that's absolutely right. The character also, I wanted to uh, add one thing to it. I wanted him to be one of these people who simply knew things about others, who simply knew whether they were lying or what they felt almost instinctively. Uh, he just simply knew what a what a character and then that would allow him to to create uh, to determine what he how he was going to act he could tell who was scared and who wasn't and and almost what people are thinking almost a savant in that way Uh, absolutely and so we don't want to give away the ending but we alluded to this Mm -hmm. a minute ago that there is a showdown between lydia uh and him uh and burr by the time uh, we get to the end of the book and i don't want to give anything away but set the scene for us in terms of what what draws them together not really the the outcome but you know they're kind of on these parallel tracks that sort of dovetail in and out but eventually when we get to you know past the midpoint of your novel we can see these two are headed uh headed straight for each other so to speak on on a collision course to to use sort of a, a cliche there but can you set up the the backdrop for what what brings these two these two characters who have so much uh, uh, not in common and normally wouldn't run into each other under any kind of circumstances, if not for what happens to them in the story. Can you kind of set that up for us? Yes. Yeah. What brings them together? What, what um, motivates both characters really is revenge. And um, Lydia may not know that always, but it, it becomes, it becomes something that that's there at the end revenge. But um I wanted to set it up in such a way that this this character of Burr was simply not going to abide what had happened to him. And um, though he could have made another choice, he, he wouldn't have exacted, you know, he's he's menacing and malevolent and and for lack of a better word, evil. And that that assumes primacy in his character and um so that's why there's a showdown because he cannot forego the temptation to track down to uh, uh, exact some kind of payback on somebody whom he feels has wronged him, and um, she makes that decision to do that, and that's what brings them together. But it's it's more than that because there's that there's a supernatural element that comes into play or another element that comes into play there, uh, that bog body gets is involved and then um as you know it's not a spoiler to say that these these characters had earlier in the novel burr and the other escapees had wreaked brought a bunch of pain and suffering and violence to blackboard and so that is still present uh within lydia the memory of what what happens there on blackboard mountain early in the novel and so i wanted to maintain those tensions throughout and um the notion of a curse figures in too so all of those things, hopefully, um, those various constellations intersect and coalesce at the end into a chase, as you say. Yeah, it's a, it's a chase. I wanted to to make an exciting chase. Oh, and it's it's terrific. I mean, the ending is <laughs> is so wonderful and so well done and so well written. And uh, I, I've encouraged folks to to read it and, and to stay with it because the ending is going to be well worth all of your uh, all of your time to get there for sure. And I did want to ask you, might we see a another book with some of these characters maybe in the future? Could we I don't want to say that it was left open that we might see that, but uh, could 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 we see you coming back to 
um, the mountain here, back to Blackboard Mountain, and maybe uh, looking at some of these characters for another yeah. story or another novel in the future? Yes, absolutely. Um, particularly if I can get an agent, um, if anybody's out there. But um, I, I would love to continue this story, and I want to write a novel. Um, I've already begun to assemble notes for it and a bit of a structure about the other main female character in this novel, uh, Clytemnestra No, Clyde No, who's a little bit older than Lydia, but she's, uh, um, you know, um, she's capable too in the woods, um, has her sort of traditionally masculine qualities, but also um, feminine ones. And um, they're very similar in some ways, different of course, but um, but similar in other ways too. And I, I, I desperately want to write a, a novel about her. And I've told a lot of people and they say, oh, please. And a couple of people have asked me, they said, will you, are you going to carry on that character into a, a sequel? And I said, well, I think I'm going to write about her. And then um, at a time before this novel, maybe 20 years before. Very good. Excellent. And I know you've got some other things in the pipeline as well in terms of creative works. Tell us a little bit about those. I'm writing a, um, a novel that I'm done with the manuscript. I'm just editing it. It takes place in same time period, turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, Western Massachusetts at a, 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 a convent, a nun's convent um, in the uh, in the Berkshires, a series of mountains in the a set of mountains in the in Western Massachusetts. And the nuns are uh, beset by this um, this animal. It's almost like a like a giant wolverine sort of. And uh, they have to to band together and use all their skills to uh to repel this this animal and they they actually realize that the way to do that this is not a spoiler is to go out and hunt these creatures these fearsome creatures and um so that is a novel that's also largely about women um uh and there is a there is a priest in that novel too but the main character is a woman who's uh, lived a society life and you might know about um, sometimes convents were used for uh, to sort of um, it's really incredible uh, women who were diagnosed as having neurasthenia and quote illnesses like that. They weren't really illnesses were sometimes put away um, by their wealthy husbands or, or other members in their families to the, in these places. And that's how this story starts. A woman who's uh, she's a writer and writes shadowy tales and, her husband and her family don't think that's appropriate for a woman to do, particularly at this time. And they send her away for a bit of a rest cure at this convent. But she ends up um, in league with the other nuns there. Oh, and she realizes a, something about herself that she didn't know, that she's fearsome and strong. Oh, terrific. Yeah, that's that sounds great. That sounds great. And certainly looking forward to that. And good luck with that as you keep, you know, working on that and revising it and polishing it and getting it ready for publication. It sounds terrific. Um, so in our final moments with you, Chris, if anyone wants to stay in contact with you, to reach out to you, stay in contact with you, follow what you're up to, uh, both with uh, some of your book events coming up for Once These Hills or just to find out more about you or your other writings. Um, how can they do that? How can they stay in contact with you, first of all? And then where can they get copies of your book? Yeah, copies of the book can be um, procured at uh, all of those major outlets, Amazon and and um, and uh, <clears throat> other such outlets, uh, Barnes & Noble, but also from the publisher, Shotgun Honey, which has a website, um, can simply be Googled. And uh, they sell books 
direct. That's that's nice. Um, I will. I'm on social media at um, at Chris McGinley twelve on on X slash Twitter at Chris McGinley twelve. I'm on Instagram at uh, at McGinley esque M C G I N L E Y E S Q U E, and I'm on Facebook just under Chris McGinley. You can find me. Um, my background has the cover of my um, my novel, which is designed by. Um, Ron Earl Phillips, by the way, of Shotgun Honey Books, is a fantastic designer. I also I also have my um, book tour information posted on on all of those sites, pinned to the to the top, so you can see where I'm going to be. I'm going to be at different books bookstores, doing readings at the Appalachian Studies Association, doing events, and of course you can email me. I'd love to be emailed Chris J McGinley, C H R I S J M C G I N L E Y at yahoo.com. Any of those ways. And I'd love to, to hear from people what you think about the book. If you do read the book, please leave a review, even if it's just brief on Amazon. Helps us a lot. The title of the book is called Once These Hills. Our guest is the author of the new book. His name is Chris McGinley, not only the author of this book, uh, but of several uh, really terrific short stories that have appeared uh, in a variety of publications. And he is also the author uh, of the uh, short story collection called Cole Black, which has also been published by Shotgun Honey Books, who is also the publisher uh, of his new novel, Once These Hills. So Chris, congratulations on this book. It really, really terrific. So many great things, great characters, moments that are really going to have people, uh, I think, at the edge of their seats and really wanting more. So it's a terrific novel. Congratulations. And um, as you keep doing those other projects that you talked about a moment ago and getting those out in the world, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And I just need to say what, what you're doing is really, really important for writers at, at all different levels. And it's greatly appreciated, this this podcast about regional writing. And um, so thanks so much. It was an honor for me to appear here. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Chris. And we want to take a moment uh, as we finish up this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to our executive producer. Her name is Pam Stack. She makes all of these podcasts possible, both here on Now Appalachia, but also all the other podcasts that you hear on the network. We have over 23, counting this podcast, uh, on the network, uh, different genres, different authors, different subjects featured. So uh, if you haven't checked out the network, Authors on the Air Global Radio Network for the other podcasts that are available, uh, we hope you will do that because because there's some really, really great content out there. My, my co-hosts and friends are just terrific interviewers, and they've got all kinds of authors on all the time from all different kinds of genres. So check those out. But thanks to Pam uh, for making that possible and these episodes possible as well. We want to take a moment also to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia. But please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program, and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.